0: Okay, this this session, this next video we're diving into today, we're still in the book of Genesis. We have already covered the Genesis 3 curses, what they call messianic content or messianic verses. Uh, Genesis 3.15, we're dealing with verses about the Messiah, how he's going to come, how he's going to be presented to the world. So we've covered that in the previous session. Now we're going to jump into Genesis chapter four, and we're going to talk about Cain and Abel. So if you've ever read the Bible, or even if you're casually conversant with scriptural themes, you're going to hear the name Cain and Abel. And for people that were raised in church, this is pretty simple to to articulate and tell the story, but for others that maybe aren't as familiar, it's basically the two sons that Adam and Eve had. Cain is, he's the firstborn son and Abel is the secondborn. They are expelled from the garden. Sin has entered into the world and now mankind, humanity has to offer sacrifices. And that we'll talk a little, bit, a little bit about that during this session. Why sacrifices? What was the deal with sacrifices? What was so important? Why was God so brutal? And um, so these are some of the themes wrapped up in Cain and Abel. Now, it's important to know this, that the, the idea of Cain and Abel is a lot bigger than just two brothers who had a problem. It's a lot bigger than jealousy or even murder, which Cain does. He commits the first murder in the scripture. He kills his brother Abel. Um, If you've taken the time to read it, you'll find that Cain is a, he is a tiller of the ground. What we would call a farmer or what the old King James called a husbandman, one who kept the ground, who was responsible for the ground. Uh, Abel is a keeper of sheep. He keeps the flocks, he's a shepherd. And so in an agrarian agricultural society, the farmer and the shepherd were a big deal. And, And these are themes, recurrent themes that we find in the Bible. So it comes time to offer sacrifices to God. They are in communion with God and relationship and partnership with God. And Cain brings what the Bible calls the fruit of the ground. We don't know exactly what that was, but it was vegetables, fruit. He brings it to the Lord. He offers it as a sacrifice and God rejects his sacrifice. We're going to talk about why. Abel also brings a sacrifice. And he brings what the Bible calls the firstling of his flock. So he brings a lamb. And that lamb, he offers it on the altar. It is a sacrifice to the Lord and God accepts his sacrifice. Cain is angry at his rejection and at Abel's acceptance. And so later on, he rises up against his brother. He slays his brother. He kills him. God punishes him and he becomes a vagabond, a wanderer. God puts a mark on him so that if people find him, they don't kill him. and. That's the story of Cain and Abel. It's a it's a powerful story. Um, it's a story of fratricide, where a brother kills a brother. And there's a lot of themes there that you could use in terms of theology and Bible teaching. But what we're gonna focus on today are some of the big elements that are, they're foundational in the scripture. And you need to know these in order to understand Jesus. If you don't understand these themes, then the, the story of Jesus is not gonna make a lot of sense. and please remember this as you read the Bible. The law is the schoolmaster to bring us to Jesus Christ. The whole point of the law was not just a moral code for a a wicked people, a fallen people, but it was a preparation stage to prepare them for a fuller revelation of God. God wanted to walk with his people and so the law prepared for that and was the schoolmaster or the educator to bring us to the revelation of Jesus Christ. So everything in that Old Testament is going to point to Jesus. Okay. So let's talk about these themes. Um, Theme number one, item number one, let's, let's talk about one of the first things here. I want to tell you about the power of the blood. That's the first theme I want to give to you today, the power of the blood. So why does God reject Cain? Why does he accept Abel? And you can ask somebody that question. Why do you think God did that? And you'll get a a bevy of different answers. Everybody's got a a different take on why that would happen. And and they'll say stuff like, well, Abel Abel probably brought his his best and Cain probably didn't give it his all as, as though, you know, effort and being sold out was part of it. And maybe we do see that Abel brought the first sling of his flock. So there is something about giving God your best and your first fruits. The idea of first fruits is in there. Um, and it's just kind of arbitrary. People will just pick and choose the reasons why. And there's not a whole lot of logic behind it. So we're going to try to get to the meaning, the underlying meaning as to why. And there is a big reason why. And that reason is found in this first, this first element I want to give to you, which is the power of the blood of the Lamb. That is a huge theme that is recurrent through the Bible. Okay, so here we have... Cain, he's offering up a sacrifice. He offers up the fruit of the ground. Abel offers a lamb. God accepts Abel's, he does not accept Cain. Cain. there's something in Abel's that is not in Cain's. So what is that something? And we find that in Leviticus chapter 17. Leviticus chapter 17 and verse 11. Let me show you a theme that it's important that we grab a hold of. It's Leviticus 17, verse 11. This is what it says For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that maketh an atonement for the soul. So here we have this idea of atonement and we have this idea of it being blood. Now, in the New Testament, you'll find the same idea in Hebrews chapter nine. Turn there with me. uh, Hebrews chapter nine, we read about Moses in verse 19. Hebrews nine and 19, for when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and of goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book and all the people saying, This is the blood of the testament which God hath enjoined unto you. Moreover, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without shedding of blood is no remission. It was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these, with blood, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. So in the Old Testament, it was necessary that the patterns of things, we're gonna talk about those patterns of things, those patterns of things should be purified by blood, but in heaven and the spiritual dynamics of the New Testament, there are better sacrifices, there are better promises. And so we don't have the blood of a lamb, we have the blood of Jesus Christ, who is the lamb of God, but more on that later. Okay, so blood is what God gave uh, upon the altar to make an atonement for the soul. Atonement is, is, is the paying of the debt of sin. It is making things right with God. One, one way people describe it is, is to say that atone means to be made at one again. Two parties that were separate, separated by sin. When that is rectified and it's made right, then they are at one. So you say they are atoned or atonement is at So you bring two parties back together. Man and God are now joined back together. But let's talk about how that works. Leviticus chapter 17 verse 11, the life of the flesh is in the blood. Get that, the life is in the blood. So in God's mind, the life that we have is in in blood. The life of a creature, the life of a man, it's in the blood. DNA and medical advances illustrate this pretty pretty well. That blood is powerful blood without blood. There is nothing. It's what makes us go. It's the flow that regulates and and propitiates life. So life of the flesh is in the blood. Now, remember that the wages of sin is death. If you eat the fruit of the tree, you shall die. So in order for a life to be given to pay for that death, then blood is given to cover that sin. And the life that's in the blood pays for the death that's in the sin and the debt's paid. That's why there has to be blood. You have to have blood. Cain does not have blood. Abel does. So because Abel has that blood, God accepts his sacrifice. There has been atonement. They have been made to be at one. God can speak to him. The air is is cleared between the two parties. The covenant has been restored. Sin has been atoned for. It has been paid. And and Abel is now able to communicate freely. Cain is not. the, The price has not been paid. His sins have not been atoned for because vegetables, fruit can never equate to the blood that is in the animal. And so... That's what I mean by there's power in the blood. The lamb was a big deal. Every sacrifice that was given, what was happening was God was saying, I'm accepting the life that's in that blood for the death that you have to pay. And so I'm I'm allowing that atonement. So when Noah gets off the ark, he offers up a sacrifice. Abraham on Mount Moriah, he offers up a sacrifice. Elijah on Carmel with the false prophets, he offers up a sacrifice. Uh, uh, Solomon at the dedication of the temple offers up a sacrifice. Moses in the wilderness, on and on and on. The sacrifice, uh, the sacrificial system, the Levitical priesthood, it was all rotating around the idea that there's power in the blood of the lamb. And so if you don't get that now in Genesis four, it will make no sense to you later when Jesus Christ, who is the lamb of God sheds his blood. And how that relates, we're gonna get into here uh, in this session as well. But now now you know why when we sing songs in the church, uh, particularly the apostolic church, we sing songs like, what can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know Nothing but the blood, nothing but the blood, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Um, so his blood is precious blood. The idea of precious blood, you know, it can sound so foreign and barbaric to somebody who doesn't read the scriptures, but when you realize that that's what atones for your sin, then the Jewish custom of sacrifice then makes a lot more sense. And Jesus' sacrifice makes a lot more sense. So that's the power of the blood. And as you read that a little further in Isaiah 53, when it speaks of being wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, the flow of that blood, um, it covers our sins, our transgressions, our iniquities. And, And then it says, with his stripes, we are healed. And so there's a healing element that comes from that blood. So All of those are huge themes in the Old and the New Testament, and and we see the first principles of that in Cain and Abel, and why God accepts Abel and he rejects Cain. Okay, the second principle I want to give to you is the principle of substitution. There's a principle of substitution here, and that is a pretty simple concept in that God in his grace allows another to take our place. In this case, it's an innocent lamb. Uh, but substitution works like this. God realizes that if we die, it defeats the purpose of creation. If justice is served in its entirety and to its fullest degree, then because we've sinned, he has to destroy, destroy his creation. So God makes a way In one place, one Old Testament scripture says, "God yet doth devise means whereby his banished be not expelled from him." Thank God for that. That God makes a way for us, and that's what He did here. Abel is the one that should have died. He's the one who that should have given his life. If Abel sins, Abel should die for that sin. If you sin, you should die for that sin, or you should pay the penalty for that sin. I I'm responsible for my sins. And so um, if we do that, all creation dies. The purpose of creation is done. Sin conquers and hell wins. So God makes a way. He says, I'm going to find a way to satisfy the law that says there must be death. And I'm also going to accomplish my purpose of fellowship at the same time. How can I make it to where my creation doesn't die, can worship me, and yet my words still be honored? And he created the principle of substitution. It was a workaround. It was a loophole, so to speak, where the law could still be fulfilled and satisfied, but yet you and I could still live. And that was where the Lamb came in The lamb does not deserve to die. The lamb is innocent. The lamb is spotless. The lamb, uh, the nature of that lamb is one of grace and obedience and, and it's precious. And they take this lamb and here's this guilty man who doesn't deserve it, who has sinned and who by all accounts should pay the debt of sin himself. And they take that innocent lamb and they kill it. They slay the lamb. The lamb dies and gives its life for the guilty. What a, what a theme, what a, what a concept. Somebody said one time, they said, you know, life isn't fair, uh, brother Urshan, it's not fair because it, you know, there are things that have happened that just aren't just. And it's true, life's not fair. There are bad things that happen, but I look back at him and I said, you know, you're right, it's not fair. And if it were fair, then we never would have had a substitute, we would have got what we deserved. I thank God that it's not completely fair because it's not fair that I have access to God. My mistakes, my failures, it is not fair that I should be able to come in and and fellowship with a holy God, but yet here I am. He's allowed me to do it, here you are. And, and I am so grateful that God had mercy and he wasn't fair. So this is the idea of substitution that instead of Abel dying, the lamb dies in his place. And if you can get that picture of the lamb lying there, the life spilling out, the blood spilling out of his body, guilty Abel lifting his hands and and glorifying God and thanking God, then you get the essence of how God allowed that to restore man to fellowship and why the sacrificial system was given. And that leads me to my third point, the third thing that I want to give to you today before this session is over. And the first one is the power of the blood. The second one is the principle of substitution, but this third one, this is a big one. This third principle I'm gonna give to you is one of the most important themes you will ever hear in the Bible. And when I say it, there's gonna be some pointy headed intellectual out there with too many degrees and too many letters after his name for his own good, who has read so much of the Bible that he knows where stuff is at, but he's missed the point. They're gonna squawk when they hear this. The American mind is not conditioned to receive what I'm about to tell you, but to the ancient mind, this made perfect sense. And to the common man, it makes perfect sense. And it's a really powerful theme, and I I wanna share it with you. The third theme I wanna give you is the principle of shadow and type. Got that? Say that with me, shadow and type. That idea is one that resonates through the scripture and it helps us to see the pattern that God established. The shadow and type are, it's for spiritual people who earnestly seek the word of God. And it's a blueprint that shows us not only what it says, the Bible will tell you what it says, but the shadow and type shows you what it looks like when it's put together. So let me tell you what a shadow is. When you say shadow, people go, what are you talking about? It's a shadow. Uh, The American mind doesn't really use it that much, but I can give you kind of an illustration. A shadow is what happens when a light hits an object and casts its shadow. And so that shadow is the image of the thing. It's the pattern of the thing. It's the shape of the thing, but it's not the thing. It looks like the thing, it, it comes before the thing and tells you that the thing is coming. So my shadow goes before me. When the sun is behind me, it casts my shadow before me. And when my shadow comes, then you know I'm coming. I'm coming around the corner, I'm, I'm coming close. And it looks like me and it's shaped like me. And if you look closely, you can see a lot of the themes and the, sh- the, the, the patterns of my build and my shape or whoever's build and shape, but it's not actually the person themselves. And this is where we get the idea of foreshadowing. I suppose in English, um, you could use the word metaphor or simile, which comes where we get the word similar or similarity. So there are things like that, likeness would be another word. We're going to deal heavily with that because the Bible wasn't written to college degreed, post-grad experts in ancient literature and ancient um, history, customs. It it wasn't written to the educated. Remember that very simple people read this. These These were shepherds. These were Hebrews. They were often looked down upon. Um, In the New Testament, fishermen, tax collectors, harlots, people of of low reputation, the simple people. What what Jesus, when, when he prayed, he said, Father, I thank you that you have not revealed this unto the wise, but you've given it to the babes. And so, This is not an elitist textbook that you have to be, you have to have eight years of Greek and Hebrew training to begin to understand it. And I I am all for all of those things to get a grasp on scripture, But, but academic elitism is not what we're after. And there's not a chosen few that can understand this book. This is for spiritual people guided by the Spirit of God. It was that way from the beginning, it is that way now. And the shadow and type is one of the fastest ways to to get a glimpse of what God is saying. So let let me show you how the shadow and type works. If you can see the lamb broken, bleeding, lying there on that altar, its body, prostrate, the blood spilling out onto the ground, mingling with the dust, a guilty man who doesn't deserve this mercy from God and this this administration of grace from God. If you can see the lamb's innocence, its, its lack of blemish, if you can see all of that, then it shouldn't be too big of a stretch for you to see Calvary. That the Lamb of God would come. He doesn't have hooves, he doesn't have wool, he he doesn't bleat as he follows his shepherd, but he is the Lamb of God in that He is our substitute, and his blood atones for us, and he is perfect, and he has not failed. There is no blemish in him, and he doesn't deserve this. And so we read in Isaiah 53 that he was led as a sheep before his shearers is dumb, so opened he not his mouth. And the innocent Lamb of heaven gives his life for the guilty party that doesn't deserve any of this. And if you can see that lamb and that blood spilling down that altar, you should be able to see that lamb of the New Testament and that blood streaming down that cross. And one covers the sin of a man, but one in the New Testament would cover the sin of the whole world and indeed the cosmos. That's the shadow. That's the foreshadowing. The Lamb's not Jesus. It's the shape of Jesus. It's the pattern of Jesus. It's a glimpse of Jesus before Jesus gives, gets here. It's not saying, look, this is Jesus. What it's saying is, he's coming. Look, he's coming. And, and the schoolmaster is giving you the elements, the themes of the blood, the substitution, and atonement before it gets here. So that when the real thing shows up, we've been waiting. We, we've known this was coming. God has been teaching us all this time. So this is the story of Cain and Abel. It's not a story of jealousy. It's not a story of murder. It's not just a story that we teach in Sunday school. It is a story of atonement. It's a story of substitution. It's a, it's a story of the shed blood of the sacrifice that foreshadows Jesus Christ. That's the end of lesson two, and I hope you've enjoyed it. I look forward to our, our next session.